Well, good morning. Sorry, I was awkwardly standing back there. I came up a little bit too early. <laughs> I forgot about the scripture reading. I think I've messed that up twice now. Oops. <laughs> We're going to be looking at Romans 12, particularly because... This morning we're looking at what is the church, who is the church, and what does it mean to be the bride of Christ, the body of Christ on this earth. And this is the beginning of a new series that we're doing just this summer, the six weeks series, a, a summer series through uh, living pictures of the gospel, living pictures of the gospel. And this is the first in that series. Um, God is built into creation into the church, into our families, into uh, our individual lives, certain living pictures of the gospel that we're to use to magnify him, that we're used to magnify Christ by putting the gospel on display. He's woven these into the fabric of his creation. He's given us uh, the responsibility to model before a watching world these pictures of the gospel. And I want to look very closely at them so you know God's glory, and Kirby even quoted this earlier, uh, God's glory and his specific attributes are reflected in everything he's created. The heavens declare the glory of God. We can know things about God just from creation. Romans 1 says his eternal power and his divine nature are clearly perceived. He's woven that into creation so that just living on this earth and experiencing creation, beholding it, you can see that God is divine. He is God. That he is all-powerful. You can see those things, such that, Romans says, we're without excuse. But in order to manifest his glory in a greater way, to communicate more truth, to, to put a, a better picture of who he is, his attributes on this earth, he created Man in his own image, male and female. And he placed them here to reflect his glory to a watching world and to a watching cosmos. And so that means that our most fundamental purpose is to glorify God by reflecting the glory of God to a watching world. That is our primary purpose, to glorify God by reflecting his glory to a watching world. World. Of course, we failed at this, right? We, we, know the, we know the story well. His image in us is marred. It's still there, but it's marred. And so when you look at people, you see the image of God, but you also see brokenness and sin and destruction and death and disease and hurt and hardship. You see all of those things in us because of the fall. And so God redeemed Israel. He redeemed a people for his own glory, to be a light to the nations. They're to shine the light of the glory of God and draw the other nations in so that they would also find their hope in Yahweh. We read earlier in Leviticus 19 that we, he says, you are to be holy for I am holy. They were to reflect God's nature, God's attributes, God's character. That's the light that they're to shine to the, to the, to the nations. But they also failed at this task. However, because of our failure, the fall, 
that has made a way for God to show an even deeper picture of who he is through his redeeming love. We would not be able to see a picture of God's redeeming love without broken, sinful people to redeem. And so the fall makes the way for us to see redemption. God's love on display. The perfect demonstration of God's love through a redeemer, his very own son, who lived as a perfect image bearer. He did it. When we failed, the first Adam failed, he did it. He was the last Adam, and he imaged God perfectly. He flawlessly reflected the glory of God through his own personal holiness. He died as the perfect demonstration of God's love. For God shows his love. He demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And through Jesus Christ now, we have an incredible opportunity to reflect his mercy to the watching world by running to him for forgiveness and to find grace in the gospel of his son. Praise God for this. Praise God. We have a unique opportunity to put the gospel on display through many means. And this morning, we're going to talk about how we do that as the church, as the body of Christ. How do we put the gospel on display for the watching world to see, to be drawn to him? We also shine the light. But unlike Israel, who shine the light in order to to draw the nations in, no, we're given a commission to go to the nations and take the light of Christ to the nations. That is our task as the church. And so God has written into this amazing story of redemption certain living pictures, certain representative models or living illustrations, you might say, of his glorious gospel. And that's the subject of our attention this summer. We're going to be looking closely at just a few of those living pictures God has given to us to put the gospel on display to the watching world to the glory of his great name. So we're going to look at things like marriage, how it uniquely pictures the gospel. It pictures the relationship between Christ and the church. We're going to look at baptism, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are kind of those given ones. They're the living pictures that Jesus explicitly commanded for us to do. They put on display for us the gospel. When we baptize someone, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. When we take the Lord's Supper, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us, we're reminded it's a living picture. But there's others our own personal testimony, our Christian witness to this world, individually, even our burial. Christian burial is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the resurrection. We're going to look at that, but today we're looking specifically at the church. I'm getting a little bit of feedback. I don't know if it's just me or... But the church is the primary, the quintessential living picture of the gospel. And so that's where we're starting today, is this primary picture. The the primary place where the gospel is put on display for the world to see is in the church. In fact, all those others are a part of the church. They happen within the church. Think baptism, Lord's Supper, those things happen as the church demonstrates the gospel to a watching world and to our hearts as well. This is Christ's very own bride that he purchased, that he bought. His body 
the temple of God, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. That is us, the church. We are God's field, Scripture says. We're God's building. In a few weeks, Pastor Gary's going to preach on, like I already mentioned, our Christian witness. How do we individually, as embodied souls, individually, how do we put the gospel on display? But we're looking at the collective nature today. How does the church put the gospel on display as we are built together into a dwelling place for God? A light to the nations. And so we're going to be doing this through Romans chapter 12. I go to chapter 12 because it's after chapter 11. And all of chapters 1 through 11, actually. Because Romans chapters 1 through 11 is a, I would say summary, but it's pretty long. It is a, an explanation, an exposition of the gospel. Romans chapters 1 through 11 Teach us beautifully the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he brings it to a conclusion. If you look at chapter 11, verse 33, with this beautiful doxology. I love, if you know me very well, you know I quote this all the time. I love this doxology. He comes to the end of studying the gospel, explaining the gospel, all the riches of the beauty of the glory of God found in the gospel. And he says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's beautiful design of the gospel is brilliant. It's brilliant. Primarily because you can't save yourself. And so we have to trust in him to save us. He's written the story that way. And you know what the end of that is? We can't get the glory. He gets it all. God gets all the glory. And that's what Paul is saying there. He's praising God because he's written the story of the gospel in such a way that only God gets the glory. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we get to participate in his working, in the way that he brings people to Christ. He's put us here to do that, to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to live it out and to model it. And that's what we are. We are the church, that city on a hill. So we begin with verses 1 and 2. This is one of the most memorable, one of the most defining passages in all the New Testament. Verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, he says, I appeal to you based on the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Well, he says, therefore, right there, because he's referring to chapters 1 through 11. Right? He's like, because of chapters 1 through 11, therefore, how then shall you live? I'm about to tell you. And chapter 12 is him hitting hard. How do we live now in light of the what he calls the mercies of God. Oh, the gospel is the mercies of God multiplied to us. It is a beautiful picture. And he appeals to us based on that. That defines everything for the Christian. Because God has been merciful to you, how ought you to live? Well, he begins with, present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of service, your rational worship. It makes sense, doesn't it? If God has redeemed you from such brokenness and such sin and shown on you such mercy, does it not then follow that we are to give ourselves, present ourselves to him wholly and completely, living for his glory and his glory alone? That follows. That only makes sense. This is reasonable. If you've been redeemed, live like it. Live in thanksgiving. Live in gratitude to the God. Live in worship to the God who has redeemed you. And so we begin with number one. I want to look at this. Reflect the mercy of Christ as a living sacrifice. Number one, reflect the mercy of Christ as a living sacrifice. We're going to walk through these attributes that Paul gives us in this chapter. And he appeals to us on that basis. He appeals to us. Because God has been merciful to us, because he's pitied us when he ought to have punished us, because he sent his son to die for us in our place, and though we deserve nothing more or less than the fierce anger and the wrath of God for denying, for rejecting, for opposing his son and opposing our purpose as image bearers to bring him glory, because of all that, mercy he says we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It is the mercy of God. It's his undeserved compassion and forgiveness that is the primary motive. For every one of these reasons, he begins with the mercies of God to set the tone for the rest. That's the primary motive as to why we are called to manifest the gospel, to image Jesus Christ. This appeal is the premise of all of his imperatives for the rest of the letter. Chapters 12 through 15, he appeals. All of, those, all of those commands are, are made as an appeal to God's mercy. He could just as well have begun this section with another doxology. Crying out, oh, the depth of the riches of the mercies of God. How immense is his compassion and how immeasurable his love. I want you to notice here in verse 1, he says, we, plural, are to present our, plural, bodies, plural, as a, a, singular, living sacrifice. That's singular. So we together make up the, the singular body of Christ and we, as individual bodies, are to present our body as a living sacrifice. Do you see that? So we are talking individually here. You need to take the, the commands that he's giving to heart for your life, but also us as a church. And I want you to think corporately in this. How does the church do this? How do we as the church present our body, Oak Park Baptist Church, as a living sacrifice to Christ? What does that look like? Earlier in chapter 6, he says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He goes on to say, For just as you once presented your members to slaves, or as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, 
leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. We as the church of Jesus Christ, we are to present ourselves wholly and completely to God in worship, in sanctification, in good works of righteousness because of the mercy of God. So the love of Christ is what compels us. It's what controls us. Because we have concluded this. This is for 2 Corinthians 5. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is what he's appealing to. You, church family, have been redeemed, have had the mercy of God poured out, lavished upon you. And so you, Oak Park, ought to present yourself the living sacrifice. Present yourself wholly to him for his service. It just makes sense that that's what unites us. What brings us together this morning is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. We all find ourselves completely undeserving of God's mercy. And so, when we gather here and we give ourselves wholly and unashamedly to the worship of the merciful God who's redeemed us, when we show kindness and forgiveness and mercy to our spouses, to our children, to our parents, to our in-laws, when we submit willingly and graciously to our bosses, when we get the short end of the stick at work, but we don't grumble and complain, when we consider others' needs as more important than ourselves, we manifest his mercy to people who desperately need it. We are the body of Christ in this world. We reflect the mercy of Christ as a living sacrifice, and we, the church, become a living picture of the gospel. Turn your attention now to verse 3. He appeals now, not just to the mercies of God, but to the grace of God. For, why should we do this? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you that he ought to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think of himself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned You've heard it said that mercy is not getting from God what you deserve. That's helpful. And grace is getting from God what we don't deserve. And that's so true. Every blessing from God is all of grace. And that's why Paul leads us straight to humility. What do you have that you were not given? He calls, it, he calls this humility sober judgment, thinking rightly about yourself and about others, sober judgment. But every believer knows the way we ought to think of ourselves. We are wretched sinners who deserve nothing. What did we just sing? These two truths I hold, my worth and my unworthiness. He didn't save you because you were worthy. 
You're worthy because he saved you, because he made you in his image, because he redeemed you and purchased you. You have value. But notice he says, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So there's a sense that every single one of us, as members of the body of Christ, each one of us has received a measure of faith, a certain amount that God has assigned to us, a certain type of grace in the form of gifts, spiritual gifts. We're to use them for the good of the body of Christ, for the church, and for the glory of God. In verse 4 he says, for as in one body... We have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. There's again that play on singular and plural. We are the body of Christ together as many members. We're to not just demonstrate the mercy of God by being a living sacrifice, but we're to demonstrate the grace of Christ, number two, as humble servants. So he appeals to humility Reflect the grace of Christ, number two, as humble servants. Individually, we're given grace. And corporately, we're to manifest that grace to the watching world and to each other. The church is a mosaic. Each one of you, as a believer in Christ, you individually have been redeemed. And you have your own story that is beautiful, that what included... Your sin and God's grace upon you. And that in and of itself, if you zoom in, is a beautiful picture. But then we all come together as the body of Christ, as the church, many members making up one beautiful mosaic. And you stand back and you look at the church at large, and she is beautiful. Each one of those pictures has brokenness. And each one of those pictures has grace. And the church, it has, she has brokenness. Oh, but she has grace. We're the bride of Christ. He washes us with his very own word to cleanse us, to present us ultimately Dressed in white. I remember back to my, one of my good friends uh, when we were in seminary. He was getting married and we're at his uh, rehearsal. No, yeah, rehearsal. And um, we're practicing or whatever. And um, they play the song that she's going to walk down the aisle to. And it's Amazing Grace on Bagpipes. And his dad, <laughs> his dad was like, why did you choose that? That is so awkward. You know, it's like Amazing Grace on bagpipes starts playing, and then eventually you get to like verse two, I guess, of this instrumental Amazing Grace, and the whole symphony comes in, and the doors open, and she walks down. And I'm like, I know exactly why he chose this to be the song that she walks into. Because he's trying in his wedding to put on display that this is not really about us. This is about Christ, the bridegroom, redeeming his bride, the church. That's a picture of the gospel. You are a picture of the gospel. God's amazing grace that has been poured out on you is a beautiful picture to the watching world. Rest in that. When you fail, when you mess up, when you sin against people, 
Run to Christ for forgiveness and show them, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I need a Savior. You know what? You're broken, you're sinful, then you need a Savior. Reflect the grace of Christ. You've been gifted, each one of you individually, Paul says. That's part of the grace that's been given to you. Not just the grace of salvation, but the grace of empowerment by the Holy Spirit to serve the church. And so you've been given these gifts, use them to the glory of God. If you hold back on those, you're putting your light under a bushel. God has been given, God has given you grace. Second Peter 4 says, each, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's beautiful. Good stewards of God's varied grace. His grace to each one of us looks differently. Just think of it as like a ray of light. And as it hits you, it's a different shade, it's a different color, it's a different measure of grace to you. And as it all comes together, it makes this beautiful picture. But that only works if you are using those gifts, if you're a good steward of the gifts that have been given to you. Some of you have been given grace, spiritual gifts that are supposed to be used to serve the body. But you're squandering them, you're, you're burying them, you're not using them. And what are you doing? You're putting that light of grace under a bushel, and so the church is more dim because of it. Peter says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. This is a parallel passage to the one we're reading here. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Use your gifts so that in everything, your generosity, your service, your teaching, your encouragement, your exhortation, your love, you're coming alongside someone, you're praying for someone, all of those things together combined make up a beautiful picture of the gospel so that in everything, in every one of those little pieces of this mosaic, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, Peter says. In one other, another one of Paul's letters, he says, for what we proclaim, talking about the apostles, as an apostle, he says, I've been given grace, that measure of faith has been given to me to be an apostle. And he says, for what we proclaim, what the apostles proclaim is not ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as, Lord's, as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, now listen, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown through Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the one who, if he's be lifted up, he draw all men to himself because he is the light of the world. And that same light, that same light shines in each one of our hearts as the grace of God to us. And we're not to put that or hide that under a bushel. Think of it as this. The church is the prism through which the blazing, white, hot glory of God is shining. And as it hits that prism, it is refracted into all the beauty 
and glory and splendor of the whole spectrum of the, of, of the rainbow, of, of all light. It's reflected through you as you serve the church. So take account. Are you doing that? Are you serving? Are you using the grace that God has given you in order to serve the church that it might shine to the world as a beautiful picture of his grace? When we discover, when we embrace, when we develop and practice the spiritual gifts God has given us for the good of his body, for the good of the church, when we multiply out the grace of God given to us, to others, when we teach when we serve, when we encourage, when we give, when we lead, when we show mercy, when we humbly use our gifts to serve others, we are the body of Christ to this world. We reflect the grace of Christ as the great gift giver, and we, the church, become a living picture of the gospel. Number three. Reflect the love of Christ as affectionate brothers. Reflect the love of Christ as affectionate brothers. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. I love the beginning of that. Let love. Just let it. You know, just allow it. Allow the love of Christ to flow. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another, he says, with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. First John 4 says, We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God is love. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love for us. How? God is love, but you can't see God unless he allows himself to be seen. How does he do that? God is love. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates, he shows, he manifests his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is the gospel? The gospel is a picture of God's love. Now you be a picture, church, of the gospel. God is love. He demonstrates his love for us. And therefore, no greater love hath any man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Why is it that the greatest demonstration of love that you can do is lay down your life for your friends? It's because God is love. And he demonstrated it through laying down his life for you. It's like which came first, chicken or the egg? God is love. He's always been. That came first. His, his 
redeeming of you through his crucified son happened in eternity past. And so why is it that it's so powerful to us when we see someone lay down their life, when we see someone fall on a grenade to save his friends? Because that's the way God has chosen to reveal his love to you. And he's created you to exist on that love and to reflect that love. So let me ask you, is your love genuine? Do you demonstrate brotherly affection to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you strive to outdo one another in showing honor? Or do you put on a face, but beneath the facade you whisper slanders? You show up to your community group faithfully, but you use it as an opportunity to gripe and gossip. You see the needs of others, Feel the Spirit moving you to manifest Christ's love, but resist those promptings out of fear. Well, maybe you struggle to love because you're afraid of getting hurt. Similar to you might struggle to worship because you're afraid of what it might look like or how it might be embarrassing to you or something like that. First Peter 4 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Of course you're going to get hurt when you love people. But love covers a multitude of sins. And so keep on loving. Maybe you struggle to love because the people you're called to love seem unlovable. Do you not know that you were unlovable? While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember verse 3, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. In another place, Paul says, consider your calling. <laughs> consider your calling to salvation. He says, not many of you were wise, not, uh, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so if you think of yourself as wise, powerful, of noble birth, he will bring you down. You, he resists the proud. But if you think of yourself and know that you yourself are foolish and weak, low and despised, oh, he will raise you up so that he might boast over you, so that you might boast in what he's done for you and so reflect his love. So when we know the love that God has for us, his bride, when we multiply out the love of God shown to us, to others, when we outdo one another in showing honor, when we love one another, we're the body of Christ to this world and we reflect the love of God, the love of Christ who laid down his life for us. 
When we do those things, we, the church, become a living picture of the gospel. And lastly, Paul calls us to, number four, reflect the peace of Christ. Reflect the peace of Christ as peacemaking saints. Reflect the peace of Christ as peacemaking saints. Look at verse 18. If possible, he says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I recently had a family member who was pursuing sin in their life. And when they were confronted and when they were asked why, they said, I just want peace. It's moments like those that we're in a vice, the pressures are coming in. Often that vice is of our own devising. But God uses it as a way to apply just the right amount of pressure to reveal truth in our hearts. And is that not where we stand right now? We long for peace. Ultimately, that's what we desire. I just want peace. That's not wrong. Where we go wrong is when we seek it in the wrong places or in the wrong manner. Notice in this passage a series of exhortations. If you're under persecution, don't curse, but bless. Are people around you sad and bringing you down? Weep with them. Are you feeling trod on? Pride and arrogance are the path to peace. So associate with the lowly. lowly. Uh, Pride and arrogance are not the path to peace, I should say. So associate with the lowly. Do you have enemies, he says? Don't avenge yourselves. The way up is down. The way up is down. We're called to be peacemakers. We're called to manifest the peace that Christ has brought to this world, to a watching world. It's ironic that so often in pursuing peace, we strive and we fight to get it right, fighting for peace. We wage war in the name of peace. And that makes sense in the mind of the world. But you, church, are called to something so much higher. When we bless those that curse us, when we multiply out the peace of God that we experience to others, when we live in harmony with one another, when we are persecuted and we go the extra mile and we turn the other cheek, We are the body of Christ to this world. We reflect the peace of Christ as the great peacemaker. And we, the church, become a living picture of the gospel. Are you manifesting peace, the peace of Christ, in your life? And are we manifesting it as a church to a watching world? There's coming a day very soon... When the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And we, church, Oak Park, will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Until that day comes, be the church. Manifest the mercy of God to a watching world. The grace of God to one another as you serve each other. The love of God as you love one another with brotherly affection. And the peace of God as peacemakers. Who are those who on the last day will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, it's a marriage supper. It's a wedding reception. Only the bride is honored. Only those who are part of his bride, the church, will enter at that time. And so I would ask you, if you're not a part of the bride, let me just tell you, Jesus is merciful, he is gracious, he's loving, and he is peaceful. All of those attributes we are to manifest. He is those things to people who come to him. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so come to him. I appeal to you, come to him. Turn away from a life of worldly pleasures that can never satisfy. Turn to Jesus. Maybe you don't know how to do that. Well, you're in luck. You're at church. We are the church. We manifest these things. And so I would encourage you, ask church member. Talk to one of the pastors. Come talk to me. Turn to Christ today and know his mercy, grace, love, and peace. Well, maybe you have trusted Christ to save you, but you're going alone. You're going at it alone. You've never joined the church you don't understand that the church is his bride. Or maybe you've never followed Christ in that first step of baptism. And so you're not a part of his body. Let me just urge you. Obedience to Christ begins with baptism. And you cannot obey any of the commands that we receive today without being a part of the bride. A healthy, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching local church. I find it an immense privilege and pleasure to be a part of you, Oak Park. To manifest to this world the mercy of God as we reflect on our own salvation. The grace of God as he's gifted every single one of you. And when you serve, it is beautiful. The love of God as you care for one another, you visit one another, you pray for one another, you show mercy to one another, and the peace of God that we experience as his bride. Let's pray. 
Father, we do thank you that you are a God of mercy and that you show mercy to whom you show mercy. Thank you that you are a God who richly lavishes grace upon us. And Lord, we're so undeserving. Father, we thank you that you are a God of love and that you've shown us your love through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you're a God of peace and that the peace of God is with us as your bride as we cast our cares on you as we come to you, taking your yoke, taking your burden upon ourselves, the peace of God guards our hearts and our minds as your body, your hands, and your feet to this world. May we be on mission, shining the light of Christ brightly, but taking that light to the nations. May we be faithful as your people, as your body, as your bride, to glorify you in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray now as we respond that we'd be faithful, that we would be humble, and we would follow your leading. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.